Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Colorado has seen more than 17,000 cases of coronavirus and more than 900 deaths, but the curve there has flattened significantly. While residents are no longer under a stay-at-home order, they are strongly advised to stay safer at home in case there's a resurgence. Unfortunately, as stay-at-home protesters push states to reopen sooner, we're seeing another resurgence. Anti-Semitic signs and banners, as well as comparisons between the safety restrictions and Nazi tactics. With family who died in the Holocaust, Colorado Governor Jared Polis does not take these comparisons lightly. He joins us now to talk about Colorado's approach and his take on the anti-Semitism emerging. Governor, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. So tell us, as of May 5th, uh, since things are changing every day, what restrictions are still in place in Colorado and why? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, and it really, of course, like anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, it, it even depends where you go in our state. We're really doing our best to make sure that people are as safe as possible. So when you go to a store and stores are, are generally open, obviously some choose not to. Uh, they have to have additional requirements. Um, they have to be able to have the decal showing where people wait in line and exercise social distancing. Anybody who is working with the public in a store has to wear a mask. And, and in, in several cities and counties in our state, the customers have to wear a mask too. So it really just depends where you are and what you're doing. The goal is to have uh, you know as much opportunity for folks to earn a living and live their lives as possible while protecting all of our health. Mm -hmm. So you do have a, a fair share of protesters, or you're seeing a fair share of protesters across the country who want to reopen the country sooner. And I'm curious what your advice to them is, what your response to that has been. Well, you know, most things that they, they want to do, they can do. I mean, certainly go shopping, go to work. Um, we're all frustrated that, you know, schools, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and they're doing online, and <laughs> yeah, you know, it's tough. I, I get that people, you know, want their kids to go to school, but the school year is almost over, and kids will be back next fall. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, and, and, and I know that we're all frustrated that, you know, the, the Rockies aren't playing, and, you know, the sports teams and all the concerts aren't happening, but Right. That, you know, of course, those are not allowed under health orders, but even if they were, they actually wouldn't be happening anyway. I mean, Major League Baseball is not having a season yet. Normally, we'd be in baseball season here. The concert tours are canceled. So um, it's not so much a function of, uh, of our rules saying that we can't have, you know, thousands of people together. It's just the fact that that's not happening anyway. Right, right. So I'm curious, coming up with the restrictions, enforcing the restrictions to keep everybody safe, I'm curious if your Jewish upbringing or traditions informed that in any way. I mean, this is an unprecedented event. How have your Jewish teachings, what have they taught you? Well, you know, like many Jewish families, of course, we had a uh, Passover in our home and we I uh, had video conferencing with the grandparents and the cousins and everybody like that. Um, you know, I, I think this is an important time for people of all faiths, and really people want the reassurance that our faith traditions provide us. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the Jewish value system holds um, the value of life uh, very high, and we're doing everything we can to keep people as safe as possible in difficult circumstances. Yeah. Israel had a very tough policy, a uh, series of policies to keep the virus under control there, many of, of which were very successful. And I'm curious if you looked to them as an example at all to make decisions. 
Well, you know, I'm really looking at countries across the world, uh, and and obviously Israel and and European countries. Others have done different degrees of good jobs. I saw in Israel, they're rapidly moving towards you know opening and going back to work, and I think kids are back in school this week in Israel. So you know, we're following all of this uh, very closely. And what works in one country doesn't always work in another. You know, the some of the uh, sacrifices that Israeli citizens made with regard to their privacy, with some of the apps that that they're using, are simply not the same kind of sacrifice. Sacrifices that Americans are willing to make, but I think yeah. we have a lot to learn from the responses in all countries. Yeah, so we see some really troubling signs of anti-Semitism emerging. Um, there were actual signs that quote the slogan at the entrance of Auschwitz. There have been some just terrible, blatant signs of anti-Semitism at some of the uh, reopen protests. I- I'm curious if you have ever encountered anything like this before when it comes to a public debate. Well, you know, in challenging times and tough times when people have fear, when people have anxiety, they reach out for a scapegoat. They try to blame somebody. And so, you know, it could be, uh, it could be China. It could be the Jews. It could be our own government. They want to they wanna blame somebody. Obviously, uh, in the Great Plague and, and the Black Death, uh, many communities blame Jews for, for that as well, wrongly. Uh, and, you know, I think that when, when times are tough, people want to blame people. And, you know, Jews are often on the short end of that uh, globally throughout history. Mm-hmm. So how should Americans address this kind of phenomenon when it happens? Well, I hope that, you know, just as people, some look for a scapegoat, the flip side of that is it also brings out what's best in people. It brings people together around a common cause. Uh, it's really a call to arms as a, a, for humanity, uh, as Americans, as Coloradans, as Christians, as Jews, to really show what's best in all of us to help our neighbors. Uh, if you have a neighbor who's 78 years old, you could go to the grocery store and offer to bring the bring the groceries to the doorstep so they don't have to go out and risk exposure to the virus. So all those things are happening all over the world, and it's yeah. really inspiring. You know, in addition to some of the ugly remarks and signs that people are, are displaying, protesters have also made some very insensitive remarks comparing some of the restrictions to Nazi tactics. And a reporter brought this up to you at a press conference rather recently, and you, you took it very personally. And I, I'd like for you to explain to our listeners why, why you took that so personally. Well, it's it's you know it's just uh, not only bizarre but just beyond the pale to argue that steps that are taken to save the lives of our fellow uh, people, especially those who are most vulnerable, uh, is somehow in any way can be equated to Nazism when it's the exact opposite, right? The Nazis preyed on the most vulnerable, uh, singled out uh, Jews and gypsies and the handicapped and the disabled for prosecution and death. So Mm -hmm. it's really, you know, the exact opposite and, um, you know, should be accurately portrayed as such. Yeah. So are you consulting, you talked about looking to other countries for guidance on how to handle this. Have you also consulted with other governors, both Democrat and Republican in other states to get best practices? Yeah, I talk regularly, uh, both through National Governors Association, one-on-one calls with our neighboring states, you know, Kansas, Wyoming, Utah. Uh, Also, uh, we're, you know, formally part of a working group with many of the Western states in the country. So there's a lot of learning going on. We're all in this together. And we learn from one another about how best to protect the public health and protect our economy. And has this issue of scapegoating, whether it's Asian Americans or uh, Jews, has that come up at all in these conversations and, and how to address it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, absolutely I've worked closely with our Chinese American Chamber of Commerce here, the Asian American community. Uh, I think most people understand that that's not where the virus came here from. It, uh, it was infected from tourists from across the world, Australia, Italy, 
many of them enjoying our world-class ski areas uh, in Colorado that, that initially brought it here. But it's really a time of, of unity and, and a time where people should come together across their regional differences, across their faith differences. And we see examples of that every day. Yeah. My final question for you is, do you foresee um, our country returning to normalcy by the high holidays this fall? Um, and, and what do you think this country will gain? What will be different after all of this, after these clouds lift? Well, it's hard to say when we'll return to normalcy. It won't really be a true normalcy until we have a vaccine or a cure. We certainly hope that that's as soon as this fall or winter. Um, we simply don't know. There's scientists across the world, including in Israel and the United States and China, all racing towards cures. Many of them are in clinical trials and vaccines already. But, you know, there's no date that anybody knows. I think, what do we have to learn? Humanity needs to learn. Of course, there's a lesson in humility here for us um, that, you know, effectively we're using some of the same techniques you know, people used in 1918 against the, this, the flu pandemic, you know, mass social distancing, the tried and true methods, but we're really not a lot more advanced in that sense. But also just to be better prepared, to be better yeah. prepared for this kind of health event. We can't forget that. Uh, it's absolutely, this absolutely was a lot worse if people lost their lives because we didn't have the right mass, the right equipment uh, to be able to contain this sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Do you have all of the PPE that you need there in the state? Have you had any additional challenges? No, everybody would. Every state would love to have a lot more. Um, you know, we, we use every 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 N95 and KN95 we get. You know, whether it's a nursing home employee, whether it's being able to say that uh, our workers in healthcare can uh, go through two masks a day instead of one, um, that reduce their risk of infection. I mean, we could all use a lot more, uh, really, across the world. Yeah. Well. Governor, best of luck keeping up with all of this, all of the challenges that seem to change day to day. But thank you for taking time to join us and, and share your perspective. Thank you. Have a good day. This week marks 75 years since the liberation of Mauthausen, the last of the Nazi camps to be liberated. And it also marks 75 years since the end of World War II in Europe to talk about what this milestone means and to help us understand the amazing history involved. We're joined now by Dr. Kurt Graham, the director of the Harry S. Truman Library and Museum. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Harry Truman led America through great crises, through World War II, the Korean War, a couple of different economic downturns. The world again faces a great crisis in the coronavirus, and America has become the epicenter. The question I want to ask you is, how would Truman have handled it? But that's maybe not fair to you. It's, it's kind of an impossible question. So let's start with this. What lessons should America's current leaders have learned from Truman in order to tackle the current crisis effectively? Well, I, I think that... Um, Truman faced a crisis like very few presidents have ever faced. And we don't know yet whether this crisis will rise to that level as well. I mean, remember, he's just coming off, you know, the end of World War II. I mean, World War II is the most catastrophic, devastating event in the history of mankind. I mean, you've got 80 million casualties. In this. So what we're facing today, although it's very serious and, and very troubling, um, it does not quite rise to the occasion in terms of the turmoil that Truman faced. I think what stands out about Truman though, and whether this could be advice for modern leaders today, as much as it could be for leaders in any generation, 
Uh, Harry Truman is known today, and we talk about Truman today because he was so decisive. Truman knew how to make decisions. And he made those decisions based on kind of his moral compass, his moral core. He always returned to values that guided his principles. So he didn't just make a lot of decisions, he was decisive. And I think that's a really important distinction. And I think that that is a characteristic that we look for in leaders. You cannot afford to waffle, especially in a crisis moment. And Truman, you know, he didn't necessarily make every decision correctly, but he didn't second guess himself either. He made his decisions and he moved on to the next decision. I think that's a wonderful lesson for any of us, whether we're political leaders or just in our own lives, we all make decisions. The opportunity to make a decision, to move on, and to confront the next decision. I think it's a, it's a wonderful pattern that Truman laid down for us. Hmm. Hmm. Now, I'm in the lucky personal position of never needing to scramble to remember when Harry Truman was born because my bar mitzvah was on May 8th, just like Truman's birthday. And Truman, in the years after World War II, presumably never had trouble remembering when V-Day was because that, too, fell out on his birthday, perhaps the best birthday present any American president has ever received. Tomorrow, May 8th, 2020, will be 75 years since Germany surrendered and the war in Europe came to a close. Now, the world only made it about 20 years after World War I before World War II began. So what does it mean to reach the milestone of three quarters of a century since the World War? Well, it's incredible when you stop to think about the infrastructure in the post-war. I mean, the ending of the war, of course, is a moment we can certainly talk about, but the, the significance of the war and the way it ended and the fact that the scaffolding or the infrastructure that Harry Truman and Winston Churchill put in place has brought more peace and more prosperity to more people than at any other time in human history. There has been more wealth, there's been more prosperity. More Now, there has been war, there has been famine, there's no denying there have been difficulties in the last 75 years. But the fact that the world has remained largely at peace and largely sharing that prosperity, we have a ways to go, obviously, I'm not suggesting that, but certainly it is more broadly shared than it has ever been at any other time in history. And I think we owe that to Truman and to Churchill and to other courageous leaders in our Congress and in the Parliament and other places. And this prosperity, by the way, is not just for the United States and Western Europe. This prosperity extends to every corner of the globe, to every continent, to every nation. And that in and of itself is an incredible achievement. You actually, in your answer, you preempted my next question, which was going to be whether that lasting peace can be attributed to kind of the wisdom of, of the allied leaders. So let me take this opportunity to, to slip in kind of more of a, of a fun question. My boss actually recently brought to my attention the story of the poker game. Since you mentioned Truman and Churchill, the story of the poker game between Harry Truman, several cabinet members, and Winston Churchill on a train, I think, on the way, this is one of those too good to be true things, but on the way to where Churchill was going to deliver his famous Iron Curtain speech. And Truman, you know, apparently told his fellow Americans to let Churchill win. Can you tell us that story? And maybe, you know, are, are there other non-historical but really powerful human moments that you would have loved to see? Well, Truman, well, first of all, Truman loved to play poker. And he loved, that was a great sort of pastime for him. 
And he had really warmed, he and Churchill, that's a very surprising relationship. You know, you can sort of bring that up. What kind of a human element was that? Churchill was a snob and so was FDR. <laughs> and they both were kind of these well-bred, high, you know, well-heeled kind of guys. And so Churchill didn't think much, didn't expect much, I should say, of Truman when he first met him. And Truman soon dispelled him of any of that uh, concern. He saw that Truman was substantive. He saw that he was thoughtful. He saw that he was a real leader. And he admitted that to him later. He said, you know, after dealing with Roosevelt, I didn't know what I would get, you know, basically from this Missouri farmer. But, you know, Truman won people over in that way. And I think, you know, it's interesting when you think about all that he had to face right off the bat. I mean, you, you ask, like, what moment would I like to be in? Like, what, what would you like to see? Just those first days hmm. of the kind of deer in the headlights you know, he's talking to Churchill on the phone for the first time. You know, and again, this is all before anybody knows what's going to happen with the war. Everybody thinks it's going to take several more months before Germany surrenders. And then it's probably going to take 18 months after that before Japan surrenders. And yet, within four months, the bombs have been dropped and the war is over. So the idea that the war was going to end is not necessarily a surprise and not something we can just directly credit Truman for. The idea that it concluded with such celerity and such finality is something we can absolutely, you know, give credit to Truman and to Churchill for. And that relationship was really a very, very important relationship, not just from the beginning, but it continued to sort of affect the way the two nations worked. And it makes you realize how important those personal relationships are. We talk about a relationship between one country and another. Well, those leaders have to get together in a room. They have to shake hands. They you know, in the case of these two, they drank bourbon and played poker and did those kinds of things. But that was a personal friendship. That was a personal relationship. And, you know, back to the Fulton business, you know, Truman was very, um, what, what Churchill said was controversial when he made that speech. And so Truman kind of walked it back a little bit. And well, I didn't know what he was going to say. I didn't really realize all that was going. So he kind of tried to distance himself a little bit to kind of see, I mean, there was a little bit of Harry the politician there, I think, mm -hmm. trying to not get caught up in the controversy that Churchill, you know, came here and touched off as if he had done that completely on his own. Thank you for sharing that kind of behind the scenes peek. Um, you know, Kurt, we at AJC are very proud of having engaged with post-war Germany, first doing so actually as early as 1949. And when we opened a permanent formal office in Berlin in 1998, we became the first American Jewish organization to take that step. And, you know, that's at a time when a good number of American Jews still weren't buying Volkswagens or BMWs. Now, of course, you know, Germany is the most important country in Europe, and that relationship is critical to our advocacy work. What do you think Truman, whose diplomatic skills were maybe underappreciated in his day, what do you think he would say about that kind of drive to re-engage post-war Germany? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that I think Truman's incredible diplomatic skills were, and to some degree are, underappreciated. I think the fact that he has lived in the shadow of FDR and other leaders, you know, perhaps I appreciate that you understand that. I think Truman's response to your question would be very clear. He said on more than one occasion, what do you do with a vanquished foe? And Truman's answer was simple. You invite them into the family of nations. Hmm. And so the fact that Germany and Japan are two of our closest allies today has everything to do with Harry Truman and everything to do 
with his reading and understanding of history, first of all. I mean, remember, he was a combat veteran from World War I, and he saw what happened to Germany after World War I and how that gave rise to Hitler and the whole Nazi notion that, you know, you cannot just step on a people's neck forever and expect them not to want to rebel and rise against that. So for Truman, it was very clear that World War II had grown out of the aftermath of World War I and the sort of poor settlement. And one of the reasons that Truman was so committed to the United Nations, he was a Wilson fan and very disappointed in the League of Nations that the Senate had refused to ratify that and, and that the League of Nations did not come into existence as Wilson had worked so hard to see that it would. And so he was so committed to the idea of the United Nations. But for him, you know, even with the Japanese, I mean, they came to independence, a delegation of Japanese came to independence on Truman's 80th birthday and said to him, you know, made some comment about being former enemies or something. And Truman said, we were not enemies. We had to win the war, wow. you know, but we never, there was no hatred in Truman towards people. I mean, he saw Hitler, of course, as one of the great evils in the history of the world. And he spoke to that repeatedly. And he did so from the context of history. That's what's so great about Harry Truman is he understood uh, history so well. I mean, the whole reason he set up the Nuremberg trials and things the way he did, sending Justice Jackson there, was that he did not want Hitler to be able to sort of rewrite history or have it be rewritten about him the way Napoleon had. Mm -hmm. You know, he said these evil people that do horrible things need to be held accountable for that and history needs to remember them as the thugs that they are. This week, uh, May 5th, to be exact, uh, was also the 75th anniversary of the U.S. liberation of Mauthausen, the last of the concentration camps to be liberated. Historians generally praise the U.S. Army for its conduct in liberating the camps. The Army saved starving victims. It preserved evidence. Um, it organized tours of the camps, both for media to report on the atrocities and even for German civilians to see that their national crimes with their own eyes. So I think the generals Patton and Eisenhower played personal roles in that decision making process. But did Truman have a role? Oh, certainly Truman had been, I mean, the liberation of the camps started well before Truman became president, of course, you know, that was underway. But the fact that I mean, Truman was so well aware of what was going on in Europe, even back when he was a senator, even back in 1943, he began speaking about this mm -hmm. uh, very publicly and, and very um, stridently. So he understood the problem. And of course, he continued to be shocked at the, you know, as those concentration camps became liberated and then became displaced persons camps. And the conditions there were, were horrific as well. And he was very concerned about that. So Truman took a very personal hand in that. But, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this. You just mentioned the May 5th date. On April 12th, the day that Harry Truman became president, the day that Franklin Roosevelt died, was the day that Eisenhower was touring one of these liberated camps. And he did so with Patton was with him. But Eisenhower, to his everlasting credit, went into those camps with cameramen, not just photographers, but with news. We would call it video today, but of course, you know, rolling pictures. Mm -hmm. And he went in there. Patton wouldn't go in. He said it would make him sick. Hmm. He said he just blood and guts Patton would, did not have the stomach to go in and see the carnage that was left behind. Ike uh, sucked it up and went in there and he forced everyone to come and take pictures. He said, I never wanted people to be able to call this merely propaganda. Well, I wanted them to confront what was there. And he said a famous line, I'm sure you've heard in many contexts. He said, the things I saw beggar description, you know, so this word all gets back yeah. to Harry Truman. Of course, later there's the 
Harrison Report and all these kinds of things. I mean, you know the, the story from there, but but it was something very much that Truman was concerned about. Certainly, Ike had a, a great role in that as the commander in Europe. These two presidents, I think, playing a very big role in helping the world understand exactly what had happened and how devastating that had been. Yeah. Yeah. From the liberation of the camps, from the end of the war, it only, you know, whichever point you choose, it only took about a thousand days from that point in 1945 to Israel's founding in 1948, from unquestionably the lowest point in Jewish history to one of the highest, I guess, depending on your feelings about the revelation at Sinai, right? I, I mean, that has to rank up there among the most historic, momentous thousand day spans in history, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And as you well know, and your organization well understands, that has Harry Truman's fingerprints all over. I mean, the idea that we go from, you know, the liberation of these camps, these DP camps, and, and he had to basically confront even a close ally, the British, you know, over over some of their policies to allow that kind of, or, or you know, continue the, the immigration into uh, Palestine and, and, and ultimately the founding of the state of Israel, which he recognized, as you know, within minutes of its being formally declared. And that was a very, you know, complicated history all by itself, but something that I think in many ways was never in, in doubt. As I said, Truman was very decisive. He went to his core moral convictions. And I think that doing something, following through on the Balfour Declaration, doing the right thing for a people who had been so abused and so displaced as a result of the Nazi regime, I don't think there was ever a doubt that Truman was going to do what he did in terms of trying to find a safe haven, a safe place mm-hmm. for this people to you know, reconstruct itself. Now, I want to close with uh, with some of your work right now, because you're overseeing a massive overhaul of the Truman Library. I, I'm sure work has slowed somewhat during the lockdown, but this is progress that is underway. I toured the old permanent exhibition, and I greatly enjoyed the small part devoted to Truman's decision to recognize the new state of Israel right away. As you said, I think it was 11 minutes after it was declared in, in 1948. I understand that the new exhibition will have a somewhat enhanced focus on that decision. Now, I know why it matters to me that Truman declared Israel as an American Jew. Why is it so important to the keepers of Truman's legacy to tell that story? Well, first of all, you're right. That story is going to receive much more focus in our new exhibit. And to just answer the first part of your question, you know, you, the work has slowed. Actually, we've been very fortunate that the construction work is continuing. Oh, good. And we are still... I mean, there will be some delays because of supply chains and things, of course, in this crisis that we're in right now. But the fact is, we're still more or less on track for an opening sometime this fall. And I would like to invite you to come out and do a podcast from the Truman Library when it is reopened. And we will walk through all of the rooms and the build up to the recognition of the state of Israel, which is going to be an absolute central focus in this exhibit. There's a beautiful uh, media piece that has been produced. It's a very large room. The cases with the Torah, the menorah, the things that, you know, in Truman's possession that were gifts to him, those are interesting stories all on their own and would love to share those with you when you come out. You ask, why is this an important story? I think it's an important story for those of us who aren't Jewish, for those of us who are just looking at this as historians, looking at Truman as a historic figure. It's important because it gets to the heart of who Harry Truman is. If you want to understand Harry Truman in sound bites or in just a few quick high points, I think that some of the key decisions he had to make, ending the war by dropping the bomb, 
the recognition of the state of Israel, the desegregation of the armed forces and the federal workforce, um, his decision to you know, fight the Korean War under the banner of the UN and that kind of thing. I mean, those are decisions that, you know, people may disagree with some of these decisions. And even today, there would be people who would not be nearly as excited, for example, about the recognition of the state of Israel as you are. There would be people who would see that as an unfortunate decision. However, I look at Truman as someone who made a decision based on information he had and based on his own moral compass. And I go back to this time and again, he did the right thing, but he did it for the right reason. And I think that's what marks Harry Truman as a leader. And I think these kinds of decisions emphasize that so clearly. Whether you care about Israel for other reasons or not, you have to look at Harry Truman as a real leader uh, in his time. Well, that's a, a lovely answer and a very gracious invitation. And we look forward to hopefully taking you up on it someday and, and certainly encouraging all of our listeners to, you know, what better way to spend some time under lockdown than to start planning your trip to Independence, Missouri. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Amanda Borshel Don, the Jewish World Editor at the Times of Israel. Amanda, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Manya. Hi, Sethi. Now, this weekend, much of the world is celebrating Mother's Day, but not Israel. Here in Israel, it is celebrated at the end of winter and since the 1990s is called Family Day as a gesture to honor any constellation of parenting. And that seems right to me, both in how I live my life today and in how I grew up. Both of my parents were professional musicians. My mom, a singer-songwriter, and my dad, a clarinetist with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra until his recent retirement. In my memory, it was actually my dad who took care of the house and did the cooking and cleaning, as well as the lawn work, until it was uh, deputized to us, his junior staff. My mom was a quote-unquote free spirit, and my dad was a willing support system for her creative endeavors. Mom was always working away in her home office at her keyboard, writing songs or scribbling inspiration on slips of paper that we'd find all over the house. She'd occasionally jet off on a tour, sometimes also with my dad, but when home, she'd have a routine that included practicing at night. Verdi, Mozart, Berlin, Bernstein, and Copland served as our lullabies. My mom was a freelancer, and so ostensibly, she should have been somewhat available to us, her four kids, but... As soon as we could fend for ourselves, she pushed us to do so. And in many ways, I've taken that approach as well with my six kids. And while, yes, I do my share of cleaning and so, so, so much cooking, my husband does as well. I've recently realized that perhaps I've adopted my mom's example a bit too well. We... Journalists have very much treated the coronavirus crisis as we would when covering a war zone. At the Times of Israel, we've been working almost nonstop for months now. From my at-home office, I've found myself swatting away the kids who have come up to visit me periodically throughout the days, the very long days. <laughs> they often are asking what they can eat, but sometimes just want a hug. The other day after I shut the computer down, one of my daughters hugged me and I pulled her onto my lap. She said, I've missed you. I was surprised and said, but we've been together all along. She said, yeah, but not like this. 
I think I've been so busy editing articles from all corners of the world that perhaps my own corner was a little neglected. I remember that feeling as a kid, although I'm sure my mom tried her best too, at that, you know, elusive work-life balance. My mom died six years ago after a long battle with breast cancer, so I don't have anyone to call or make a messy breakfast in bed for. But this year, I've decided to take Sunday off, maybe Monday too, and give my time to my kids instead. How about you, Manya? Sefi, Amanda, we've discussed this before. My upbringing was very different from yours. I didn't know many Jews in college, too. I knew two, a fellow student and a professor. And it's that professor who I've been thinking about lately. Professor Danny Jacobson was a stickler for a firm handshake. Every day before class, the former ad salesman would stand in the doorway and ask that everyone greet him professionally. He taught three levels of handshakes, the simple grip, the free hand on top of the clasped hands as an affirmation of affection, and the simultaneous squeeze of the arm or shoulder, the signal that you really mean a lot to someone and it's been way too long. He would critique how we did, make eye contact, squeeze tighter, you're late. He was tough. But will our children and grandchildren value handshakes the same way? Or will they cringe when they see us old people swapping germs with this archaic gesture? I reached out to another former professor of mine, Nina Jo Moore, an expert on nonverbal communication at Appalachian State University. This pandemic, she said, really presents a challenge to immediacy. That's the academic term for how we convey our openness to other people. But how do we convey that now, especially when we have to cover half our face and our smiles? Dr. Moore predicts that other friendly gestures will replace the handshake, but only temporarily. A tilt of the head, a curtsy, a bow, rest assured, extroverts will find a way to engage with others, she said, but also rest assured the handshake will return. She gives it about a year. I hope it does come back. Like a lot of us during this pandemic, I've been catching up with old friends I haven't talked to in years, just as I caught up with Dr. Moore. I told her that I discovered Professor Jacobson was Jewish when I bumped into him at my first high holiday service, my first, my senior year in college. At the time, those high holiday services were held in a Catholic church because there was no synagogue in Boone, North Carolina. The stern, no-nonsense exterior Danny Jacobson carried into the classroom melted away immediately. Dr. Moore laughed. Indeed, his personas inside and outside the classroom were very different, she said. Professor Jacobson passed away in December, but not before he played a vital role in establishing a synagogue in Boone, the Temple of the High Country. I am sure he shook a lot of hands to make that a reality. The value of life lessons from great teachers, firm handshakes, and hand sanitizer. That's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what topic will you tackle tonight? On Tuesday, AJC hosted Ambassador Lana Nusebe, the permanent representative of the United Arab Emirates to the United Nations. I know what you're thinking. What was a diplomat from the UAE doing talking with AJC? We're a proudly Zionist organization, and the Emirates doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with Israel. But over decades, AJC leadership have built up a trusting, friendly relationship with the UAE government, including Ambassador Nusebe, such that AJC delegations are regularly welcomed in the Gulf. And maybe it's not that weird. After all, the Emiratis pride themselves on the spirit of openness and pluralism that pervades their country. And the ambassador herself has a master's degree in Israeli and Jewish diaspora studies from the University of London. Still, over the past quarter century, this conversation 
was the highest level public engagement with a Jewish advocacy group by a representative of any Arab government that doesn't have relations with Israel. And the conversation isn't only remarkable because it happened. Ambassador Nuseba said some remarkable things, frankly, some beautiful things. In response to a question from Israeli journalist Barak Ravid about whether the UAE was collaborating on any research with Israel on how to fight the coronavirus, she said that that wasn't happening to her knowledge, but stated her belief that that kind of work, quote, shouldn't know any borders or boundaries, end quote. The ambassador went on to say, quote, this public health space should be an unpoliticized space where we all try to pool our collective knowledge in order to improve the lives of many people around the world, end quote. How right she is. I know many American Jews who have cheered with pride at each news item that hints that an eventual cure may come from cutting-edge Israeli research. But just imagine a world where a cure could come from a collaborative project undertaken by Israelis and Arabs together. What a beautiful world that would be. And that's what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 